Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm Carol Daniel here with Michael Scully, regional president of PNC. Each podcast features local and regional C-level executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform provides insights on forward-thinking business approaches that disrupt the status quo and encourage business leaders to think differently. Today, Mike and I are so happy to welcome Bob Clark, Executive Chairman and Founder of Coleco. Bob, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you on C-Speak. Great to be here with you. So talk to us about 38 years of Coleco. What is wow. the secret sauce of your success? You know, it's uh, first of all, it's amazing that it's been 38 years. It's gone by super fast, and I feel you know, as energized today as I did the day I started the business. Um, I still wake up every morning and I can't wait to get to work. I tell every person in the company as often as I can, if they don't feel the same way, they should go someplace else. So, um, yeah, you know, a lot of reflections on it, but, you know, I mostly spend my time thinking about what's next. But um, a lot of uh, a lot of good work done, a lot of good work in the community, and really, I don't know, I don't want to sound arrogant in any way, but it's per the plan, basically, that we put in place when we when we got started. We haven't changed our philosophy. We haven't changed our strategy towards people or the community. And, um, you know, good things have, have come our way, and we've taken advantage of those opportunities. Uh, Bob, you're being way too modest there. I've, I've really, I reflect, I've known you all 38 years. I remember when you started the business and what I think about your company, what I've always thought was innovation, your commitment to diversity and equity and inclusion. But what I was unprepared for in preparing for this, this meeting was your, your scope, your national scope. The fact that you have nine offices now, it takes generations and generations to build that. And the fact that you have developed $13 billion worth of, of properties for so many people across our, our great country and so many square feet, 200 and some million square feet. Talk about that achievement in mm. a relatively minor 38 years. Yeah, I think, you know, I might be the only uh, founder at the, uh, in the top 100 builders in the, in the country. I think we're in the top 10 now. And I think we're the largest design builder in the United States. And, and most of our competitors are, in fact, you know, second, third generation and, um, and beyond. But I think, um, you know, when I started the company, uh, I really didn't actually think I was going to stay in the construction business. I thought of myself as a serial entrepreneur. I'd had two businesses that I started in my teens that I sold when I was 23. And I thought I would do this construction thing and get this real estate thing and create some value and sell it and go start a new business and uh, and really pretty quickly Clayco's kind of gelled around these three ideas of a hiring the best and brightest people second always following the golden rule and treating everybody how we want to be treated and then the third thing was to be uh, selective about where we applied our craft and um, for us to pick our customers instead of our customers picking us and then building, you know, lasting partnerships. I think the other really key thing was that I always felt like I was always a, you know, kind of a, you know, 
hard on my sleeve kind of person and very focused on the community. In fact, you know, my, my adopted son, Todd, came to me the very first day that I started uh, Clayco and is now one of the largest minority builders in the country. But, but uh, Todd was 11 years old the day I started Clayco. And so we actually started out on day one with a community outreach uh, project. And um, so after that, you know, I was really focused on surrounding myself with people who didn't just come to work for a paycheck, but that, you know, I believe there's a subset of, of the human race that really wakes up every day and wants to make the world a better place, their community a better place. And so even today, but certainly in the beginning, as I was recruiting and bringing people into the company, I was very focused on people who had been in school, they'd been in their school newspaper room, or they'd been, you know, collecting cans for the needy kids or, and I was always asking people in those early interviews, what else, what else are you doing? What is your, you know, what's your goal? What's your plan to make the community better? And as a result, we really, you know, that's an embedded part of the value system, the ecosystem in the company is that I think we have reached this goal of having a company full of people who are not just working for a paycheck. That's not a person we really want in the company. So, um, so we've been able to do good work for our clients, but we've also been able to do good work, you know, in our lives and in our communities. And that's just as important as being financially successful. Bob, I had someone say to me once that they, they, they actually said these words, that they shut down when they hear diversity, equity, inclusion, that they shut down. Basically, they, they don't want to hear it. it hmm. It's always been a commitment of yours. But as you well know, there are those who still question the wisdom or the need for diversity as a focus of a corporation. Yeah, I'll give you a quick example. You know, first of all, well, I started the company. Uh, I grew up in a pretty diversified community in Bridgeton, Missouri. You know, there was a lot of diversity in my classroom. I was friends with kids of, you know, different ethnicities and colors. And you know, there were the airport were actually where the new runway got built it was where my neighborhood and my school was. And um, the first day I started Clayco, Todd, you know, young black kid comes up to me and asks me for a job. And I said, you know, you need to be in school, man. And he said, no, I need to take care of my family. And that was a wake up call for me. And I said, you know, to Todd, you know, look, you have to go to school. You go to school. You come here every day. I'll have a place for you to work. We'll do your homework. And, um, you know, that's 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 how that relationship started and formed. And so we all had this like this instant inclusivity right from day one and you know it's a secret power of ours but you're right about you know i just went to my first i don't really play in the industry reindeer games and there's something called the construction industry roundtable and um i just went this year because they asked me to speak i've never gone before i've been invited for 25 years we're probably the largest builder that doesn't really attend 
it's a bunch of white guys, uh, older white guys, kind of like me. And um, I was surprised by the lack of diversity in the, the meeting. And it kind of brought home why I haven't been going. But in the very first lightning round session, they were talking about not just government requiring MBE contractors, but some of them were kind of aghast that private companies like Microsoft and Amazon and uh, Google are requiring MBE um, and diversity and inclusion in their performance of their contracts now. And they're like, why would a private owner do that? And I was, I, honestly, I couldn't even respond. I was so I was mortified by the the kind of reaction. So that that is an uphill battle that uh, is it's not good for the United States or for St. Louis or for any particular community to kind of have to. While we're deal, dealing with so many other challenges to have to put something like a self-imposed uh, roadblock in our way is is uh, is not good. So. I think our company is a great example of a very, very diversified place. But what's interesting is that we're not like trying to do it. It's really pretty natural. You know, I mean, it's not something that we like put in. I know a lot of companies that haven't gotten there yet have to like enforce themselves to, to be more diversified. We've just always found it as a strength. Um, another good example is we had an interview with Microsoft uh, four or five years ago. We were scrambling to put our team together. And um, when we got up there, we had we had a pretty diversified team. My partner, Otto Nichols, um, is a black guy who's been very successful in our business. We had three women on our team. And um, we show up, and there's not one man in the room on the Microsoft side. It was all women. And it was like very diversified thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I should have brought more women. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, literally, I called the next day to see how our interview went. I said, you know, I, I was really impressed that it was all women in the room. And I go, you know, how did we stack up against our the other people that you interviewed? And she said, you were the only company that had any women in any of the presentations. I thought, oh, that must have felt really funny for those other companies. <laughs> but uh, now we do a, a really substantial amount of work for Microsoft. So it must have been a good interview. It must have been a winner. You you talk about these core values you have. And you also talk, I've heard you before, about the golden rule. So talk for a moment about what, what you mean by the golden rule. With I mean, business. isn't it the most simple thing in the world? Just... Treat everybody how you want to be treated. Put yourself in other people's shoes and be empathetic. And, you know, I see that inside our company. I saw it during COVID. I saw it, you know, um, it's just such a simple, it was my dad. You knew my dad, Harold Clark. And that was just his, his rule was to treat every person exactly how he wanted to be treated. I think, you know, I could see my dad with the governor, Mel Carnahan at the time. And the next day I could see him out in the trenches, you know, talking to a painter on one of his development projects. And he was just as comfortable going to lunch with one of those painters as he was, you know, having a 
a beer with the governor. So I had a very good role model. Bob, talk about um, Dubai. You were appointed by President Biden um, to a commission. What is the commission and uh, what kind of work have you done thus far? Well, I'm retired from the State Department now. It was basically a one-year commission. It was uh, appointed to be the Commissioner General for the United States Pavilion at the World Expo Dubai. And it was supposed to be in 2020. So originally there was a Trump uh, commissioner general there who is a fantastic uh, colleague in the construction business who had been appointed to be the ambassador to the UAE. Um, This World Expo was in Dubai. And when he had been called back after the administration change, um, he actually called me and said, you know, I don't know if you've thought about doing anything. I know you're, you know, the president. Uh, and our friends. And um, I had said, no, I have purposely not done anything for the administration, totally focused on my business and a whole lot of other things I have going on in the community. And he said, well, you know, you should really look into this. And he actually recommended me to the, you know, incoming White House staff. And so somebody in the uh, PPO office reached out to me and, you know, the rest is history. I was, in fact, nominated. and, um, And then I went through the vetting, which was an incredibly, um, incredibly kind of painful process to go through this background investigation, everything. And then I was appointed, uh, I guess, in September last year. And um, I was in Dubai in five days. My wife and I just picked up and left. Uh, the State Department also hired my assistant, which made my life livable while I was over there. So you know, we just shot over there and it was an incredible, amazing experience. We, when we got there, we decided that we were going to go all in. I worked basically seven days a week um, for six months straight after the opening. I never hardly left the campus and um, there was a lot to see, a lot to do. And it was a great opportunity to represent the United States of America um, as the, as, as at the time, the highest White House appointee in the UAE. That's incredible to hear, uh, Bob. It brings to mind, how do you keep all these balls in the air? You've developed a top 10 contractor. You took, you know, better part of a year off in Dubai. Uh, what, what's a day in the life of Bob Clark like? You know, I'm very, um, I'm attention deficit. A lot of people have heard me talk about that. That is usually a giant restraint to a person becoming successful but i've often told other people who who kind of suffer from being attention deficit that the key is to finish things and to become overly organized and so you know i i developed a system really early in my career because i i'm the first one that knows i'm getting sidetracked and um i have a you know just a regiment that i follow um i think you know i'm a member of the 5 a.m club i'm a big believer in that you know, when I first started Clayco, I was, um, my dad had leased some space for me and had sold his business and was starting to do some industrial uh, redevelopment, renovations and stuff. And and he was observing kind of me getting started. And and um, one morning he asked me to meet him for breakfast at 4.30 in the morning. And I was like, okay, I'm going to take the bait. I'm going to go do this. And um, when we got to breakfast, he says to me, so have you thought about what you're, I had Clayco for about six months now. And uh, 
He said, have you thought about what you're going to do next? I'm like, oh, come on, dad. Like, what's what's up here? So he said, well, I just don't think you're going to make it in the construction business. You you can't come in at eight o'clock in the morning and you're, you're, you have people working in the field that are showing up at work at 630 and you're like in bed still. And he said, um, I said, all right, what do you suggest? He said, I want you to make a commitment for 90 days to get up at five in the morning and be the first person in the office. And if you don't, if you don't see a difference after 90 days, I'll never bring it up again. And I've been doing that for 37 and a half years now. (laughs) So I'm a 5 a.m. guy. I'm an early, early riser. I get my day organized. I have a priority list. I usually have a call list. I have a lot of support. I have some fantastic team members around me as my company has grown. My personal team has grown. Um, you know, and I stay in good shape. I exercise a lot. I, I'm a climber. I, you know, I'm a mountain climber. So I try to stay fit so that I can take on a couple uh, challenging climbs a year. So I get some, ex- I have a balance. I have an exercise. I have my priority list. And uh, I have my call list, and I, I don't go to sleep at night until I, I kind of check every box. Bob, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I only have time for one more question. Uh, you were probably in the room. I heard Michael McMillan with the Urban League basically challenge all the business owners and everyone who was there that evening um, to do what must be done to get the region to move forward. What advice do you have for all of us to bring St. Louis together so that we do not get left behind, which is the fear that some have? Well, you can Google my recent Donnybrook interview about four or five weeks ago where I got a half an hour to answer that question. But, you know, I think St. Louis is not in a very good place. Uh, I don't think the, uh, the leadership politically has a cohesive and really solidly connected relationship with the civic community. We don't have enough civic leaders, you know, really stepping out of the shadows. Civic progress was always a kind of a failed um, organization because they were always in the background behind the curtain, if you want, if you will, instead of being out front. I think most of the communities I'm fortunate enough to work in, we have projects in about 40 other cities right now across America. And so I see up close, I know a lot of the civic leaders and the political leaders in many of those cities, and I see up close what works, and we don't have that in St. Louis, and that is a very physically engaged uh, civic leadership working with our politicians who can't be successful without that kind of support. So it's not one person's fault or the other. I'm not blaming, you know, certainly not the mayor or anything like that. I'm blaming that there isn't this connectivity and it doesn't seem like anybody's trying to make that happen in St. Louis. And I think until that kind of is being convened, we're going to, we're going to struggle as a community because it's impossible to have a strategic plan without this cohesive collaborative uh, relationship of amongst all the colleagues. So that's the biggest drawback for St. Louis and St. Louis is not going to, prosper without that. Bob Clark, executive chairman and founder of Coleco. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on PNCC Speak, the language of executives.